Hello. Okay. Uh, welcome and good evening, all of you. Uh, my name is Jyotsna Singh, and I'm a professor in the Department of English. And I'm really very honored to be invited to uh, present um, Dr. Rajmohan Gandhi today. I have heard him before, and I'm a great fan of his work and the great legacy of Gandhiji, uh, you know, for several generations. Um, and just at the beginning, the, 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 the routine of switching off your cell phones, if you could, and that this uh, lecture will be, um, you know, recorded so there shouldn't be any cell phones. Um, Dr. Rajmohan Gandhi is a noted Indian ac academic advocate for tolerance, reconciliation, politician. He has served in the Indian Senate and a president of Initiatives of Change International, a global nonprofit aiming at reconciliation and trust building. He has an, you know, an amazing history, which I will shorten. Uh, during the 1975-77 emergency, he was active for democratic rights. He has worked consistently for India, Pakistan, and Hindu-Muslim reconciliation. And that seems to be the most amazing theme of his life and his work is reconciliation, diversity, bringing people together, opening dialogue in, in the great legacy of his grandfather. And I think that's what we should celebrate today. Uh, just briefly, he has, he has so many publications, but I will just mention A Tale of Two Revolts, India, 1857, and the American Civil War, New Delhi, a Penguin, India, December 2009. His previous book was a biography of his grandfather, Mahatma Gandhi, a true story of a man, his people, and empire. Other books include Ghaffar Khan, A Nonviolent Bacha of the Pakhtuns, 2004, Revenge and Reconciliation, Understanding South Asian History, 1999. These are just a small sample. But I would just briefly say for all of you young people, whether you're you know, from South Asia or not, that this is such an important legacy to understand Gandhi. Uh, I, I remember hearing about Gandhi from my father who died last year at 96, you know, of, of meeting him once. And it, it's like this amazing kind of, you know, you say like a, a, you know, a happy kind of cloud in our cultural memory. I also am greatly admired, I've been looking at a lot of writings that uh, Professor Gandhi does in the public discourse in India. You know, he's published so many articles in newspapers uh, and other journals which really bring about diversity, Hindu-Muslim reconciliations, and the voice which is opposite to the demagogic narratives. And I would particularly like to say that this is such an important voice in Modi's India that we live in. It's a voice that counters the sort of normalized, naturalized Hindutva, the dominant ideology, and, and I would especially like to say that I totally, so deeply admire him and his legacy. And so I will not um, you know, belabor too much of your time, and his today's talk is wonderful. It's 15 final months. It's about his uh, recollection and experience of Gandhiji's uh, 15 final months. So I would welcome Dr. Raj.
thank you, Professor Jyotsna Singh. Am I being heard at the very end also? Good, thank you. Uh, I want to thank uh, the organizers, thank the wonderful Madison College team, the university. Thank all of you for coming. I thank the crew, and I wish everyone a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, so this is the seventh lecture. The final lecture will be a week from today, and that will be on the legacy of, of Gandhi. Uh, and you know the theme of this lecture. So from the moment when after three years of captivity they were released in the 1945 summer, the Congress president, Abul Kalam Azad, and the party's most popular leaders, Jawaharlal Nehru and Vallabhai Patel, nursed a desire for autonomy. Gandhi, who was released a year earlier, honored their wish. The guide whose lead the Congress had sought for a quarter century was therefore marginalized for the last three years of his life. Yet during this period, and especially in the final 15 months, the conscience of an isolated Gandhi appeared to accomplish what may have been beyond the range even of the once unquestioned master of the Congress. Between November 1946 and April 1947, when Nehru, Patel, and Azad, as also their colleagues in the Congress leadership, Rajagopalachari and Rajendra Prasad, were part of the interim government in New Delhi, the Mahatma, the great soul, who had also been the great leader, served as a simple relief worker on the ground. First, he served in Noakhali in East Bengal, in fields moist with rain, but also with the blood of Hindu victims. And then from March 1947, in Bihar's baking countryside, where hearts were often as dry as the air, and where Muslims had been mercilessly attacked. With Gandhi at different times were a handful of companions and helpers, including his learned secretary, Pyarelal, Pyarelal's sister, Sushila, who was a doctor, the creative Satish Das Gupta, the scholarly Nirmal Bose, Gandhi's unflagging 19-year-old grandniece, Manu, a grandnephew, Kanu Gandhi, and Kanu's Bengali wife, Abha. As they reached out in Bengal and Bihar to those who had lost loved ones, and also to those guilty of violence, Gandhi and his team risked life and ignored discomfort. In overwhelmingly Muslim Noakhali, where hundreds of Hindus had been killed or forcibly converted, and many women were raped, there was an uncorroborated but possibly true story of Gandhi being seized once by Muslim captors who set him free after he spoke to them. At times, eight or so armed men from the Bengal police sent by the province's Muslim League Prime Minister Surawardi stood near Gandhi's team, which included one Muslim, Amtus Salam, from Rajpura in East Punjab. Yet it was chiefly by winning the people's goodwill that the team remained safe in Noakhali. In January and February 1947, a 76-year-old Gandhi and his tiny band walked on foot from place to place halting for the night in 47 different villages. Their hosts included Malvi Ibrahim in Fatehpur village and Habibullah Patwari in Murayim. Of the weavers, cobblers, and fisher folk who welcomed Gandhi and his party in their homes, Manu would write in her journal, quote, they bathe us with love, unquote. 
Rai Mohan Mali, a washerman, a person who washes people's clothes, hosted Gandhi in village Dalta. And Gandhi lived in a weaver's home in Palla, where he said, a house full of love such as this one is superior to a palace where love does not reign. Every day, Nirmal Bose gave lessons in Bengali to Gandhi, who would rise at or before four, read and write by the light of a kerosene lamp, spin his thread, conduct two prayer meetings, and promote for the villagers' health clean air, sun baths, and mud packs for the forehead and abdomen. Sick children, Muslim and Hindu, drew Dr. Gandhi's attention. Much of his time was spent with Hindu women stricken with fear. Bose noticed Gandhi's daily ministrations on behalf of love and the extreme tenderness with which he regarded each individual relating woes to him. Recognizing that courage was needed more than consolation, Gandhi told bereaved Hindu women weeping before him in Jagatpur that tears won't bring back the dead. After the women left, he said to Manu that their faces would haunt him. All he could eat for dinner that evening was a lump of jaggery. For days, Gandhi walked barefoot. Often the grass was soft. But when Manu saw cuts on his soles and protested, Gandhi replied, we don't go to our temples, mosques, or churches with shoes on. We are treading on holy ground where people have lost their loved ones. Usually the walk would commence with a prayer song, often Vaishnava Jana, about the marks of a true follower of Vishnu, popular Hindu name for God or Tagore's poem, Ekla Chalo Re, Walk Alone. At times, Gandhi asked Manu and others, singing Vaishnava Jana, to reword the opening line and speak of the marks of a true Muslim. The pitch of Gandhi's own voice was low, but the tune was correct, said a witness, D.G. Tendulkar. On 31 January 47, Muslims in Navagram defended Gandhi's right to quote from the Quran. And in the village of Sadhurkhil, an influential Muslim, Salimullah Sahib, invited Gandhi to hold prayers on his grounds, adding he would not mind if the Hindu verse about Rama was chanted to the clapping of hands. The Rama whom I adore, Gandhi explained in Sadurkhil, is God himself, different from any historical Rama. He always was, is now, and will be forever. When a Maulvi, an Islamic scholar, said that Hindus willing to convert had at least saved their lives, Gandhi was offended by the implied condoning of forced conversion. He told the Malvi, I'm amazed that God has allowed someone with your views to become a scholar of Islam. Spinning, writing, treating the sick, and most of all, listening to the bereaved until early in the morning if necessary, Gandhi rarely slept for more than four hours at night. To Manu, he said on January 10, just observe how God sustains me. Though I sleep at 10 or 11 p.m., rise at 2 or 2.30 a.m., do my work at high pressure, and get no rest at all, I carry on somehow. That itself is a wonder. To Patel, home member in the interim government in India, and anxious about Gandhi's security in the East Bengal hinterland, Gandhi wrote, there is the one above all of us who will look after me and he is able enough. Manu cooked for Gandhi, washed his sore feet after barefoot walking, and kept notes of his conversations and talks. But there were times in Nawakali 
when Gandhi did chores which in recent years others had performed, like cooking and repairing his clothes. One evening that winter, when using dry sticks for fuel, Manu heated water for Gandhi to wash his hands and face with before retiring, he was not pleased. Where people don't have twigs for baking their rotis, their bread, he said, you want me to wash my face with warm water? I can understand heating water for bathing, but not for this. Someone who had run into Harilal deep in the south of India wrote to Gandhi that his 58-year-old son looked much older than his years. Seldom knowing how to reach his wandering son, on January 22, Gandhi sent Harilal a letter via the person who had met him, inviting him to Noakali. A month later, he wrote again to his son, who, however, did not join the father. With Mahadev Desai and Kasturba both gone, Gandhi's life was lonelier and harder than before. February was the month of Kasturba's death, which by the Hindu calendar, the lunar Hindu calendar, had occurred on Shivratri. In 1947, Shivratri fell on February 19. At 7.35 p.m. that evening in the village of Birampur, Gandhi wrote in his diary, on this day and exactly at this time, Ba quitted her mortal frame three years ago. Nirmal Bose thought that Gandhi's questioning attitude towards his own perfection contributed to Gandhi's tenderness, which soothed men and women and lifted them above their sorrow. The goals of Bose in Noakali included compiling quotations from Gandhi, who asked Bose not to be misled by sentences which showed Gandhi at his best and presented a picture of his aspirations, not of his achievements. Bose answered this remark by quoting the poet Tagore, who had said that a man should be judged by the best moments of his life, by his loftiest creations, rather than by the smallnesses of everyday life. To this, Gandhi's response was quite stunning. Yes, that is true of the poet, for he has to bring down the light of the stars upon the earth. But for men like me, you have to measure them not by the moments of greatness in their lives, but by the amount of dust they collect on their feet in the course of life's journey. Though full confession by perpetrators of violence was not forthcoming, there was remorse in several villages. In some of them, Muslim elders punished anyone committing fresh acts of harassment or looting against Hindu neighbors. Hindus who had fled returned. Chants and prayer songs were heard again. Conches were blown. Hindu women wore vermilion and bangles once more. In Bhatialpur, Muslims pledged that they would risk their lives to protect Hindus and do their utmost to get looted properties and abducted women returned. And a temple idol was restored in the presence of Muslims who had earlier broken it. Dispersed each in a different village, Gandhi's companions produced results. Amtus Salam, who always slept with the Quran at her side, went on a fast in Sirandi village when her call for a surrender of a sword used against Hindus was not heeded. While she fasted, Gandhi wrote her a letter every day, sometimes twice, twice daily. After 25 days, though the sword was not returned, Gandhi persuaded her to end her fast. Eleven Muslims of Sirandi took the pledge, with God as witness that they would defend the right of Hindus to practice their faith and they, that they would continue to search for the missing sword. In the village of Jayag, the local zamindar, barrister Himanta Kumar Ghosh, 
donated his lands to Gandhi. Receiving a power of attorney from Gandhi, Satish Dasgupta's close colleague Charu Choudhury established on Ghosh's lands a center for Hindu-Muslim harmony and development which survives to this day in Bangladesh. When Gandhi arrived in Bihar in March 1947, his horrific November story was four months into the past. Yet the province's Muslims, less than 13% of the population, remained frightened. Around 7,000 of their number had been killed and nearly 10,000 homes destroyed. In most places, the state police had merely looked on. Women and children were brutally killed. Wells were stuffed with bodies. Villages burnt down. Learning of the Bihar carnage on his way to Noakhali, Gandhi threatened a fast unto death if it did not cease. And Nehru, Patel, and Prasad left Delhi to control the province. Violence ended, but little was done for relief and rehabilitation. Some in Bihar justified the November violence as a means of saving Hindus across India, including in Bihar, from attacks of the Noakhali kind. Told by Rajendra Prasad that many Biharis thought they had done well, Gandhi replied that it was to save them from that sin that he had come. Telling Bihar's premier, Sri Krishna Sinha, that killings in his province were like the Jallianwala massacre, Gandhi spoke with similar bluntness to officials, congressmen, and the public. To Congress workers in Bir, he said, is it or is it not a fact that quite a large number of congressmen took part in the disturbances? How many of the 132 members of your committee were involved? I wish to ask you, how could you live to see an old woman of 110 years being butchered before your eyes? I will not rest, nor let others rest. I will wander all over on foot and ask the skeletons what happened. There was, he said, a way out for Bihar. The Hindus of Bihar have committed a grave sin. They will raise the head of Bihar if they do honest reparations, greater in magnitude than their crimes. There is an English saying, Gandhi continued, greater the sin, greater the saint. Abducted women, stolen goods, and illegal arms should be returned, said Gandhi, to the police, or he added, to him, or to Rajendra Prasad, or Sayyid Mahmood, a prominent Bihar leader, or to Ghaffar Khan, who was also in Bihar, to assist. The government on its part should catch culprits and award due punishment. Gandhi was in Bihar for most of March 47, half of April, and about a third of May. Most of his nights in the province were spent in the home of Sayyid Mahmood on the banks of the Ganga, but he managed to visit several villages and towns at times on foot. Within days of his arrival, Bihar's Hindus showed signs of remorse, and Gandhi was given confessional letters, stolen goods, and arms by some November attackers. Pyarelal recorded a scene from the village of Masori, where fearful destruction had occurred. Quote, after the prayer address, Gandhiji stayed on to collect money for the Muslim Relief Fund. There was a stampede as everybody pushed forward to be the first to put his or her copper into the Mahatma's hands. As he bent forward with outstretched hands, he read in those faces, trembling with emotion, the unmistakable evidence that repentance had at last crept into their hearts.
In another lecture, we found Gandhi opening his eyes on Independence Day in a Muslim home called Hyderi Manzil in Belia Ghata, a poor Hindu majority district in Calcutta, and addressing elsewhere in the city an immense gathering of Hindus and Muslims on Eid Day, which fell that year on August 18. Two days thereafter, however, the man at whose call India's prisons used to be filled and its streets emptied admitted that he was short of help. In a letter to Jeevanji Desai, manager in Ahmedabad of his journal Harijan, Gandhi said, I'm very sorry to learn that you got the articles on Wednesday. I take the utmost care to see that you get all the material on Monday evening. I send the material by airmail from Calcutta on Sunday, but I have no paid employee. Do you send anyone to the airport on Mondays? At the hour of India's freedom, the once all commanding Gandhi seems helpless, almost stranded. The general who executed his strategies by the calendar and the map is now not only marginalized, he seems unsure. He plans to greet independence in Noakhali, but Calcutta's insecurity detains him. Though his itinerary has been blown away, Gandhi retains his calm. And during this Calcutta stay, he writes out that famous answer to doubt. I will give you a talisman. Whenever you're in doubt, or when the self becomes too much with you, apply the following test. Recall the face of the poorest and the weakest man whom you may have seen, and ask yourself if the step you contemplate is going to be of any use to him. Then you will find your doubts and yourself melting away. An answer to uncertainty is what Gandhi himself needs at this moment. He still hopes to proceed to Noakhali, but Punjab's mounting violence calls him to that province. After consulting Nehru, Patel, and Mountbatten, and presumably asking himself what would help India's weakest, Gandhi decides that accompanied by Suravardi, now no longer premier, he should go, as previously arranged, to Noakhali, to Pakistan, that is. But a hostile demonstration at Hyderi Manzil intervenes. At about 10 p.m. on the night of August 31, Angry Hindus smashed the windows of the house. They smashed the doors and ceiling fans. Gandhi, Abha, Manu, and Bisen come out to meet the demonstrators. Bricks and a lati are thrown at Gandhi, at an unidentified Muslim present, and at Bisen, whom the crowd takes for a Muslim. Only the Muslim is hit. Abha and Manu, two very brave girls, as Gandhi calls them, do not leave his side and hold on to him throughout the commotion. Instructing the Muslims in the house and two policemen present to remain calm, Gandhi folds his hands in the Hindu manner towards the demonstrators while firmly asking them to disperse. But they do so only after a police officer has arrived. Going to sleep at 12.30 a.m., Gandhi is up again in three hours. He writes to Patel about the incident, refers also to Nehru and says, I pin my hopes on you too. Soon he learns of killings elsewhere in Calcutta during the night, and he goes in the pre-dawn darkness to the affected areas, sees two dead bodies of very poor Muslims, and wonders about the city's peace. In the afternoon, a telegram arrives from Nehru, suggesting a visit to Punjab as early as possible, whereupon Gandhi thinks maybe he should do so the next day, giving up Noakhali. But after visitors bring more news of Calcutta's violence, Around 50 were killed during the night of 31 August and the day of 1st September. Gandhi is clear. 
He would go neither to Noakali nor to Punjab. He would stay put in Hyderi Manzil and fast until peace returns. If Calcutta responds positively, he will go to Punjab with confidence. The newly appointed governor of West Bengal is C. Rajagopalachari, living in the grand house built early in the 19th century for the empire's governor general in India. Running from that mansion to run down Hyderi Manzil, Rajagopalachari asks his old friend, can you fast against gundas, hoodlums? Gandhi replies that his fast can touch the hearts of those behind the hoodlums. Announced at 8.15 p.m. on 1st September, the fast has an immediate impact. Violence dies down. Hindus and Muslims march jointly for peace. About 500 members of the Calcutta police force, including a few Britons and Eurasians, start a 24-hour sympathy fast while remaining on duty. A professor would recall later, some university students gathered weapons from streets and homes at great personal risk and returned them to Gandhiji. Men would come back from their offices in the evening and find food prepared by their family ready for them. But soon it would be revealed that the women of the home had not eaten during the whole day. They could not understand how they could go on when Gandhiji was dying for Calcutta's crimes. Ramanohar Lohia, the socialist leader, brought to Gandhi a group of young Hindus who admitted complicity in violence and handed over a small arsenal of arms, including a Sten gun. When members of another gang turned up, asking for any penalty and pleading only you should now end your fast, Gandhi said they should go immediately among the Muslims and assure them full protection. At 6 p.m. on 4th of September, a deputation of Hindu Mahasabha, Sikh and Muslim League leaders headed by Suravardi, went up to Gandhi's bedside in Hyderi Manzil and asked for the fast to end. Gandhi asked if they would risk their lives to prevent a recurrence of killings. After withdrawing to another room, the leaders returned with a pledge, reminding them that above all there is God our witness. Gandhi agreed to break his fast, which had lasted for 73 hours. On September 1, a young Hindu, Sachin Mitra, was killed in Calcutta while defending Muslims. And on the 3rd of September, another young Hindu, British Banerjee, lost his life guarding a peace march. During the fast, quote, processions of young women and girls of both communities walked across the city to Gandhi's lodging and brought peace, unquote. The writer Martin Green would say later that Calcutta in September 1947 showed the power of the saint, the martyr, and the virgin working together. Gandhiji has achieved many things, Rajgopalachari observed, but in my considered opinion, there has been nothing, not even independence, which is so truly wonderful as his victory over evil in Calcutta. We may note that the city would be spared large-scale Hindu-Muslim violence during the following seven decades. On the night of 7 September, Gandhi took a train for Delhi to go on to Punjab. Because the Dalit colony where he had stayed on preceding Delhi visits was overcrowded with refugees and Gandhi's safety could not be guaranteed there, Patel, who met Gandhi at Shahdara station on the morning of 9 September, had arranged Gandhi's stay at Birla House, belonging to Gandhi's friend from 1915, Ghansham Das Birla. Unhappy not to be living in the Dalit settlement, Gandhi was more disturbed on learning what was happening in the capital. 
Hundreds have been killed in the preceding four days. Localities like Karol Bagh, Sabzi Mandi, and Pahardanj were being emptied of Muslims. The city was under curfew, and people's rations were exhausted. Within hours of arrival, Gandhi went to a camp near Humayun's tomb where Muslims driven away from the princely states of Alwar and Bharatpur, part today of Rajasthan, had taken refuge, to the Jamia Milia, where many of Delhi's Muslims had huddled together, and to three camps filled with Hindu and Sikh refugees from West Punjab. For a whole day long, he listened to the tale of woe that was Delhi. Hindu and Sikh refugees told Gandhi that they had not forgotten his services to Punjab, but he had not undergone, he had not undergone the hardships they had. He had not lost his kith and kin. He had not been compelled to beg at every door. At the Jamia, the educator and future Indian president, Zakir Hussain, referred to his escape on a train a few days earlier, if a Sikh army captain and a Hindu railway official had not intervened. Hussein would have been killed. Gandhi heard, too, that Saifuddin Kichlu, for three decades a national-level leader of the Congress, had had to flee from his Delhi home. Gandhi's hosts at Birla House said the city was in such disarray that even they, belonging to one of India's richest families, had not been able to obtain fruits and vegetables. Before night fell, Gandhi knew he would not proceed to Punjab. He would stay on in Delhi. The next morning, when newspapers announced that Gandhi was staying on in the capital, a Sikh taxi driver told Bridge Krishna, who had served as Gandhi's Delhi helper from 1920, when he quit St. Stephen's College to join the movement, said the taxi driver, if Gandhiji had waited some more days before coming to Delhi, all the Muslims here would have been eliminated. In the inflamed climate of September 1947, when refugees brought dreadful accounts from Pakistan, turning Delhi into a purely Hindu city was not a fantasy. Angry sections of the populace would have backed such a bid, and many civil and police officials would have connived at it. Two days after Gandhi's arrival in Delhi, the US military attaché saw Muslim women and children being clubbed to death at Old Delhi Railway Station, even as soldiers looked on. A week later, an American diplomat said in a letter to Washington, there was no assurance that either police or Indian Army troops will interfere if a Muslim is attacked. Anti-Muslim elements in Delhi whispered that Home Minister Patel, staunchly Hindu in his heart, was secretly on their side. However, the Home Minister's hand was conscious of the law and conscious also of Gandhi's presence. A day before Gandhi's arrival, Delhi's Hindustan Times published Patel's warning that partisan officials would be punished. With Gandhi in Delhi and Home Minister Patel plainly ready to do his bidding, the plan to expel or eliminate Delhi's Muslims was aborted. Three days after reaching Delhi, Gandhi confronted the RSS chief, M.S. Golwalkar, with reports of the hand of the RSS in the Delhi violence. Denying the allegations, Golwalkar said, in answer to a question from Gandhi, that the RSS did not stand for the killing of Muslims. Gandhi asked him to say so publicly. Golwalkar said Gandhi could quote him. This Gandhi did in his prayer, meet, prayer meeting talk that evening, but he told Golwalkar that the statement ought to come from him. Four days later, at Gandhi's instance, 
a number of RSS activists called on him. He told them that zeal without purity of motive and true knowledge has been known to be ruinous. Asked by an RSS member if Hinduism did not permit killing an evildoer, Gandhi answered, how can a sinner claim the right to judge or execute another sinner? Only a properly constituted government was entitled to punish an evildoer. In September and thereafter, Gandhi's team and staff in Birla House included Abha, Manu, Briz Krishna, Bisen, Kalyanam, a stenographer, and when they were in Delhi, Pyarelal and his sister Sushila. Most, including Gandhi, slept on mats on the floor in one room at the western end of the house. At three in the morning, Bisen roused everyone else, including Gandhi, but at times Gandhi performed the routine. That room was also where, sitting on a mat covered with white khadi, Gandhi worked writing, spinning, and receiving streams of callers, where he ate his meals, and where he and the others prayed before dawn each morning. At five in the evening, Gandhi and his companions held open-air multi-faith prayers at the southern end of the Birla House grounds. Anyone could join and also hear Gandhi's post-prayer remarks. Usually, a few hundred did. Delivered in simple Hindi or Hindustani, as he preferred to call it, Gandhi's prayer time talks were published by the newspapers and also relayed live over the national radio, which was now in Patel's charge. Gandhi prepared these talks with care, sometimes writing out for the sake of the press drafts in English. On 24 September, he said, I have just a handful of bones in my body, but my heart belongs to me. So do your hearts belong to you. If he could not improve the scene, said Gandhi, he would prefer being removed from it. Reading that sentence in Johannesburg, Sonia Schlesin, his secretary four decades earlier, sent Gandhi this letter for his 78th birthday. Far from losing your desire to live until you are 125, increasing knowledge of the world's lovelessness and consequent misery should cause you rather to determine to live longer still. You said in a letter to me some time ago that everyone ought to wish to attain the age of 125. You can't go back on that. We can picture Gandhi being touched. When an Indian wrote asking Gandhi to remember that he was the only instrument to further the divine purpose, Harijan, Gandhi's journal, published the letter of the well-wisher as well as Gandhi's response. I'm not vain enough to think that the divine purpose can only be fulfilled through me added Gandhi, may it not be that a man purer, more courageous, more far-seeing is wanted for the final purpose. Seeing that Gandhi looked cheerful, an Indonesian visitor asked early in November for his secret, replied Gandhi, I look after my health with care. Moreover, I consider no one as my enemy. I also resort to certain outward remedies. You see that even while guests such as you are visiting here, I lie with a mud pack on me. Do please forgive me my lack of manners. Early in November, in a letter to someone obviously close to him, Gandhi likened his condition to that of the Princess Draupadi in the Mahabharata when the Kauravas tried to disrobe her. I saw your letter only now, wrote Gandhi, after listening to the sweet and sad song containing Draupadi's prayer. Draupadi had mighty Bhima and Arjuna and the truthful Yudhishthira as husbands. 
She was the daughter-in-law of men like Dronacharya, Bhishma, and Vidura. And yet amidst an assembly of people, it appeared she was in a terrible plight. At that hour, she did not lose faith, and she prayed to God from her heart. And God did protect her honor. Today, I also am seated in a palatial house, surrounded by loving friends. Still, I'm in a sad plight. Yet there is God's help, as I find each day. Though living in Birla House, and though protected by Nehru, Patel, and others in power, Gandhi too felt helpless, but also aided. Also in November, Gandhi sent a gift for the wedding of Britain's Princess Elizabeth with Prince Philip, to whom Governor General Louis Mountbatten was related. A small tablecloth made from thread Gandhi had drawn on his spinning wheel. The Mountbattens took the gift to London. Dear Lord, dear Lord Mountbatten, this little thing is made out of doubled yarn of my own spinning. The knitting was done by a Punjabi girl who was trained by Abha's husband, my grandson. Lady Mountbatten knows Abha. Please give the bride and bridegroom this with my blessings, with the wish that they would have a long and happy life of service. The blessing seems to have worked. For the sake of body, mind, and soul, Gandhi seemed to turn even more than before to God and to the utterance of God's name. My physician today in my thought, speech, and action is Ram Ishwar Rahim. It is my hope that when I die, I shall die with Rama Nama in my heart. I'm sustained by Rama Nama. On 12th November, when Diwali, the Hindu festival of lamps and light fell, Gandhi said, we must kindle the light of love within. Can you, every one of you, lay your hand on your heart and say that every sufferer, whether Hindu, Sikh, or Muslim, is your own brother or sister? On 18th November, he said, my Ram is not a man with two hands and two feet, but if I'm perfectly fit, it is due to Rama's grace. In November and December, he tried but failed to dissuade Muslims in Panipat, about 50 miles north of Delhi, from migrating to Pakistan. They did not feel safe in Panipat, their leaders finally told Gandhi. Deeply disappointed, he said to them, if you want to go of your own will, no one can stop you. But you will never hear Gandhi utter the words that you should leave India. Gandhi can only tell you that you should stay, for India is your home. The ministers have assured you that they will protect you even at the risk of their own lives. Still, if you're resolved to go and do not place any trust in their word, what can I do to reassure you? If I should die tomorrow, you would again have to flee. But today, having heard you and seen you, my heart weeps. Do as God guides you. As 1948 opened, Gandhi was restless. His toil had not made much of a difference. When on January 1, a visitor from Thailand complimented him on India's independence, Gandhi remarked, today not everybody can move about freely in the capital. Indian fears his brother Indian. Is this independence? Another disturbance was caused by a cabinet decision to withhold the transfer of Pakistan's agreed share, 55 crore rupees, $115 million, of the sterling balance that undivided India held at independence. Conflict in Kashmir was cited as the reason. Patel said publicly early in January that India could not give money to Pakistan for making bullets to be shot at us. But Gandhi was not convinced 
that a violent dispute entitled India to keep Pakistan's money. On January 11, he was shaken afresh when a group of Delhi's Muslims asked him to arrange their passage to England as they felt unsafe in India, but were opposed to Pakistan and did not wish to go there. That Swaraj felt like a curse was the message also of a letter arriving at this time from Konda Venkatapaya of the Telugu country, a veteran freedom fighter whom Gandhi called an aged friend. Writing that he was old, decrepit, with a broken leg, slowly limping on crutches within the walls of my house, Venkatapaya referred to the moral degradation of Congress politicians who made money by protecting criminals. And he added, the people have begun to say that the British government was much better. Gandhi found the letter too shocking for words. On the morning of 12th January, however, the agitated man found peace. The conclusion flashed upon him, Gandhi would say, that he must fast and not resume eating until there was a reunion of hearts. That winter afternoon, while sitting, as he put it, on the sun-drenched, spacious Birla House lawn, Gandhi wrote out in English a statement announcing and explaining his fast. Sushila translated into Hindustani and also read it out at the 5 p.m. prayer meeting, for it was Monday, Gandhi's silent day. 12 January 1948. Though the voice within has been beckoning for a long time, I have been shutting my ears to it, lest it might be the voice of Satan. The fast begins from the first meal tomorrow, Tuesday, 13 January. It will end when, when and if I'm satisfied that there is a reunion of hearts of all communities brought about without any outside pressure, but from an awakened sense of duty. The reward will be the regaining of India's dwindling prestige. I flatter myself with the belief that the loss of our soul by India will mean the loss of the hope of the aching, storm-tossed, and hungry world. Writing to his father late at night on 12th January, Devdas, my father, pleaded against the fast. You have surrendered to impatience. Your patient labor has saved thousands of lives. By your death, you will not be able to achieve what you can by living. I would therefore beseech you to pay heed to my entreaty and give up your decision to fast. Admitting that the son's final sentence had touched him, Gandhi asked Devdas to join in the prayer that the temptation to live may not lead me into a hasty or premature termination of the fast. A very much upset Vallabhai Patel offered to resign if that would prevent Gandhi's fast. But Gandhi wanted Patel to continue in the government. However, Gandhi raised with Patel the question of the rupees 55 crore. On the afternoon of 14 January, the cabinet met and decided to release the money, though Patel broke down before agreeing to the reversal. India's solemn obligation was discharged. This decision, by, this decision by the Indian cabinet, which was in the hands of Gandhi's political sons, was likened by Gandhi to the change he had secured earlier in 1932 in prison from His Majesty's government in London. But this cabinet decision did not suffice. The fast would continue, for there were other conditions to be met. In his prayer talk on the evening of the 14th, Gandhi referred to Delhi's significance and to a boyhood dream. Delhi is the capital of India. It is the heart of India. 
all Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, and Jews who people this country have an equal right to it. Therefore, anyone who seeks to drive out the Muslims is Delhi's enemy number one. Therefore, India's enemy number one. When I was young, I never even read the newspapers. I could read English with difficulty, and my Gujarati was not satisfactory. I've had the dream ever since then that if the Hindus, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, and Muslims could live in amity, not only in Rajkot, but in the whole of India, they would all have a very happy life. If that dream could be realized even now, when I'm an old man on the verge of death, my heart would dance. Children would then frolic in joy. The Sikh ruler of Patiala, which had seen large-scale attacks on Muslims, asked Delhi Sikhs to help end Gandhi's past. A group of Hindus and Sikhs invited Muslims who had left for Karachi to return to Delhi. Prasad, the Congress president, and Azad mobilized the citizens of Delhi for meeting Gandhi's terms, which had been spelt out. Activity in Delhi was matched by an unexpected response in Pakistan, where prayers were offered in public and also by Muslim women in the seclusion of their parda. Leaders expressed deep admiration and sincere appreciation for Gandhi's stand. Through the Indian High Commissioner in Karachi, which was Pakistan's capital, and Pakistan's High Commissioner in New Delhi, Jinnah sent a message urging Gandhi to live and work for the cause of Hindu-Muslim unity in the two dominions. However, an attack on the 13th of January on a refugee train at West Punjab's Gujarat station killed or maimed hundreds of Hindus and Sikhs fleeing from the frontier province. Gandhi reacted realistically. If this kind of thing continues in Pakistan, he said on January 14, even if 100 men like me fasted, they would not be able to stop the tragedy that may follow. Then in the same remark, Gandhi challenged his people, Indians and Pakistanis, by recalling a well-known verse. The poet says, if there is paradise, it is here, it is here. He had said it about a garden. I read it ages ago when I was a child. But paradise is not so easily secured. If Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs become decent, become brothers, then that verse can be inscribed on every door. If that happens in Pakistan, we in India shall not be behind them. Society is made up of individuals. If one man takes the initiative, others will follow, and one can become many. If there is not even one, there is nothing. On the 18th of January, the sixth day of the fast, over 100 persons representing different communities and bodies called on a shriveled Gandhi at Birla House. Rajendra Prasad read from a declaration all had signed. We take the pledge that we shall protect the life, property, and faith of the Muslims, and that the incidents which have taken place in Delhi will not happen again. We want to assure Gandhiji that the annual fair at Khwaja Khutbuddin's Mazhar will be held this year, as in the previous years. Now, angry Hindus and Sikhs had earlier vowed to prevent this hoary observance held on a revered 13th century site. Muslims will be able to move about in Sabzimandi, Karolbagh, Pahadganj, and other localities just as they could in the past. The mosques, which are now in the possession of Hindus and Sikhs, will be returned. We shall not object to the return to Delhi of the Muslims who have migrated from here if they choose to come back. 
and Muslims shall be able to carry on their business as before. We are sure that all these things will be done by our personal effort and not with the help of the police or the military. Appeals for ending the fast were then made by Prasad, by Azad, Zahid Hussain, the Pakistani High Commissioner, Ganesh Dutt, who said he spoke for the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS, Harban Singh in the name of the Sikhs, and Khurshid and MS Vandhava for the Delhi administration. Acceding to the appeals, Gandhi added that he would not shirk another fast if he found he had been deceived. Bridge Krishna, Gandhi's old helper, thought that Gandhi's shrunken and lined face looked radiant. After prayers from five faiths were sung, there was complete silence as Maulana Azad handed a glass of orange juice to Gandhi, who accepted it with a long, thin hand before asking all present to partake of fruit. Among those wiping a tear was Jawaharlal, who told Gandhi he had secretly been fasting himself from the previous day. That day, the 18th of January, 1948, Delhi was saved for the future as a city for all. Twelve days later, Gandhi would be killed as he walked to pray on the Birla House grounds. But the assassination only served to seal India's pledge to be a secular state, a nation for all its citizens, a pledge largely honored in the 69 years that would follow. Thank you. And so many things, uh, you know, the photographs and the sense of the local and the compassion. And I think my favorite part was the talisman against doubt. I think that was very moving. So um, we could have some questions. Uh, I don't know if you'd like to come here. Well, I, I, we don't have any okay, break. Okay. All right. So we'll have a few minutes break, and then we'll start with questions. 